East of Anchorage is the Chugach mountain range, and that's where I do most of my flying. So, start up and taxi out. The STEMI is a tail dragger, like a Super Cub, and take off. And I head for the hills. So, I'll typically climb to five or 6,000 feet, idle back, and poke around looking for some lift. If I find it, I'll shut down and then start gliding. This is Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Hello, and thank you for joining us for a brand new soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky. Alaska is known for its large number of pilots among its population, but not many fly gliders. Joining us today is Michael Reed, a retired Alaska Airlines pilot with over 28,000 hours logged in the past 41 years and has had his glider rating since 1979. After retiring, Michael wanted to spend a lot more time soaring, but he knew he would have to find the perfect fit for such a place. Michael decided on the STEMI S12, a motor glider with a wingspan of 25 meters and a glide ratio of over 50 to 1. Michael will be sharing his journey with us and giving us more details on that amazing STEMI S12 and what it's like to soar among the highest peaks in North America. All of that right here, right now on episode 137 of Soaring the Sky. Michael, welcome to Soaring the Sky. Happy to have you here today. Well, thanks, Chuck. It's my pleasure and honor to be here. I only started listening to your podcast a few months back and I Got hooked. I started at number one and listened to every single episode. So I'm all caught up and I'm excited to talk with you. That's a lot of listening. Thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate all the work that you do to put the podcast on. I have to say that I enjoyed every single episode and, and I learned stuff from every episode. So big bonus. Well, I'm interested to hear your story and how you got started into aviation. And we were talking earlier on our pre-interview and your aviation story actually started with day one when you were born so i want to hear more about this well when my mom was pregnant with me my folks lived on anad island which is a small island in southeast alaska my dad worked for the caa before it became the faa uh, he did airfield maintenance but uh, Annette Island was, there was an airport there built uh, during World War II by the Army Air Corps. And it was the airport for the town of Ketchikan, which is 20 miles away, uh, air miles. So my mom went into early labor with me unexpectedly. And so time to go to the hospital, but the hospital is in Ketchikan. So to get from Annette Island, you get on a Grumman Goose or maybe a PBY, fly to Ketchikan land in the harbor there, taxi up to the dock, and then you're on your way to the hospital. So that's what happened. She claims I was almost born on the airplane. Not She liked to embellish her story, so I'm not sure exactly how accurate that was, but I was born that afternoon. <laughs> so I would have had another flight back uh, just a few days later. That would have been my first flight. Would have been on a Grumman Goose to back from Ketchikan to Annette Island. There's a different airport now in Ketchikan built in the 70s, but it's still on a separate island. 
it's only about uh, a little less than a mile away from the city. So the, you take a ferry now from the airport to the town, but still a lot of uh, seaplane activity that takes place down there. But that was the beginning. Uh, we left Annette Island before I formed any memories of the place and moved to Anchorage. Uh, my folks split up when I was young, and somewhere along the line, my mom joined the Civil Air Patrol and got her private pilot certificate. And she bought herself a tea craft on floats so that she could go fishing after work, grab her fish pole and fly across the inlet to one of the lakes, cast a few lines, and you come back. She eventually traded up a little bit. From her tea craft, she got into a partnership with a Cessna on a Cessna 180 with floats and wheels. So I've been around aviation since uh, the very beginning and kind of followed my mom. She was in the Civil Air Patrol, and when I was old enough to join, I joined the cadet program. And part of the cadet program is aerospace education, so had a lot of um, training. Basically, it's a, I guess you would call it a private pilot ground school that kind of things you learn in your aerospace education there in the cadet program. A lot of the cadet squadrons these days have training airplanes available and they, they get orientation flights, or maybe even training. Uh, that wasn't available at the time I was a cadet until just at the end of uh, my time in the cadets before I aged out. Right at the end, I got a couple orientation flights. But even being around all this aviation growing up, the idea of aviation as a career just didn't occur to me. I graduated high school and was out of the cadet program and headed off to Fairbanks, the University of Alaska in Fairbanks. And, uh, worked on a degree there, worked on different degrees, <laughs> uh, different majors, and finally settled on mathematics. But the uh, fall of my senior year, uh, there was flyers hanging around saying that one of the local flight schools was offering a discount to the college students for flight training and checked it out and signed up for lessons and wound up getting my private pilot certificate there. And that was kind of a surprise to me. I'd always been a, a nerdy kid growing up, uh, not very athletic or anything. When it turned out I was coordinated enough to fly an airplane, that really pleased me. I got my private pilot certificate. Still, I wasn't thinking about aviation as a career. I graduated with my degree in math and Right after graduation, the uh, Trans-Alaska Pipeline construction was getting going full force, so I got a job on the pipeline. That allowed me to save up some money, theoretically, to go to graduate school. When those kind of jobs on the pipeline, you're working 10 or 12 hours a day, seven days a week, and your food and room are provided, and there's no place to spend your money, so it's easy to save your, save your paychecks. And... Being the procrastinator that I am, I neglected to get applications in to graduate schools on time. So I didn't have any place to go in the fall for graduate school. So I continued working on the pipeline. But after the Christmas holidays, I left there and then decided to go back to the University in Fairbanks to take a few graduate level courses before I headed off to graduate school. And I was out wandering around the airport in Fairbanks that spring and saw a truck parked there with a hand-painted sign on the door that said Alaska Aerobatics and an upside-down airplane painted on his door there. So I waited around for them to come back, and it was a young guy with a super decathlon. He was teaching 
aerobatics there. He was a first officer, first officer for Wien, Alaska Airlines. He was based in Fairbanks. And so I signed up for some aerobatic flight instruction from him. And that was very enjoyable and educational. And I think I learned so much there and got gained so much confidence, the ability to control an airplane. That was a real boost to my uh, my flying abilities, and I'd highly recommend that anybody, either glider pilot or powered pilot, get some aerobatic training. It'll pay you off a great benefits. So I enjoyed his introductory aerobatics course so much, I signed up for an, another five hours of training. And uh, so he started saying, hey, Mike, you should go get your ratings and go into aviation. And that was about the first time I had that idea, or he, somebody put it in my head. And at the same time, the head of the math department and the university was telling me, hey, Mike, the space race is over, and the Apollo program has ended, and a week doesn't go by that I don't get a dozen resumes from PhDs in math and physics looking for jobs. So right then I knew that um, heading to graduate school wasn't going to provide me any work in the future, so I decided to go to flying school. So I have uh, Craig Fultz to thank for that. He was the Ween pilot that gave me the aerobatic instruction and put the idea in my head. So I spent that summer working again, saving up a few more dollars and studying the commercial pilot ground school studies. And while I looked around for flight schools to go to, back then there's no internet, so you would look in the back of your flying magazines or plane and pilot or whatever and read the ads and send off for information from the different schools and I picked school in uh, Oklahoma the original American Flyers and went there the train's certainly not like Alaska train it's flat as a pancake in Oklahoma yeah <laughs> and the wind's always blowing but they were based in Ardmore Oklahoma which is about halfway between Oklahoma City and Dallas four big runways at 45 degrees angle to each other so you never had too much crosswind. And selling point for me was they had dormitories and uh, eating facilities on the airport. So I headed for Oklahoma to get my uh, ratings and never looked back. I, I, I wound up having what to me is a magical career. I've loved every single minute of it. And if they didn't kick you out at age 65, I'd still be there. I mean, I absolutely loved every minute of my career including starting with going to the flying schools because you're was eat, sleep, and fly, you know, six or seven days a week. And so you'd uh, fly multiple times a day, go to ground school, and just keep on going. So seven months after I got there, I had my commercial and instrument rating, my multi-engine rating, and my instructor rating, and my instrument instructor rating. And I was flat broke. <laughs> so that worked out about right. I even had somebody sell my car back home so that I could finish paying off by flying there. I headed home. My mom dropped me off at uh, one end of Merrill Field, which is the General Aviation Municipal Airport here in Anchorage. And so I walked from flight school to flight school, putting in applications. Decided to pick the one where the flight instructors wore ties like they had at uh, the flight school in Oklahoma. Turned out to be one of the best decisions I ever made. Uh, met my wife, my future wife there. Her folks owned nice. the flight school, and she worked there in the office. It wasn't until quite a bit later that we wound up being married, but 
we've been married for 35 years now, so that worked out pretty well. Yeah, I'd say that was a good decision. And the flight school kept us busy all the time. The school was open from 8 in the morning till 9 at night, and you'd get an hour off for lunch. So if you were scheduled all those hours, that's what you'd be working. And during the first summer there, the Veterans Administration was going to end their benefit program for the veterans had been out more than 10 years. So everyone was clamoring to use their flight training benefits that were available before they expired. So that was a busy summer where you were working every scheduled period. Uh, since it was mostly commercial and instrument training, it greatly increased my knowledge of operating in the ATC system and working instrument flight rules and whatnot. And I still consider the time I spent as a flight instructor is some of the best training I ever received. To say, if you want to learn something, the best way to learn it is to teach it. And that was certainly the case for me. So we stayed busy. The flight instructors were working 1,000 plus hours a year. So that's a pretty good way to build time. But we were also building knowledge and experience there. So after a little over two years flight instructing, it was, I got a job with a charter outfit and they had kind of a strange mix of airplanes all the way from a Cessna 185 to Learjets and eventually while I was there they got some Condor 580s and a de Havilland Dash 7. They also had a small fleet of twin otters that mostly were operated out of Fairbanks and not out of Anchorage so I never really flew the twin otter which was a shame because it sure seems like a fun airplane to fly. But I got to fly the, the Lear and the Convair and the Dash 7, and those were all kick-in-the-pants airplanes to fly. Yeah, I can't imagine. And then after five years there, I got a job with uh, Alaska Airlines. Spent a year and a half or so in Seattle when I first got hired as a flight engineer on the 727, but eventually was able to get back to Anchorage and back home on the 737, they had a, three of them based in Anchorage, so it was a small base, about 20 crews. The amazing thing about my airline career is that basically after I got back to the Anchorage base, I never did any layovers. So I flew for 32 years almost with no layovers anywhere. It's, it's very unusual for an airline career. The only reason it worked out that way is because when I first went to the Anchorage base, the 737s only flew around Alaska. They didn't go places and lay over. So the planes would head out in the morning, they'd come back in the afternoon, reload, go back, come back at night. But then they were basically parked overnight. So we were done for the day. On the major holidays, the flights would, wouldn't go because passengers didn't want to fly on the holidays. They wanted to be home. So not only did I not do layovers, I wasn't gone for the holidays. I was home all the time. That's like a dream job for an airline pilot, right? It is exactly a dream job. I'm grateful every day that I wound up in aviation and with the jobs that I had. And not only that, I got to fly 737s around Alaska. They paid me to do that. And it was just fun, fun, fun every day, going to different places and facing the challenges of flying into short runways, slick runways, and Arctic conditions, day and night, out to the Aleutian Islands, southeast Alaska, which is basically flying in fjords and 
maritime conditions. It was amazing. I'm so grateful every single day. You had a, a really nice schedule, but the flying had to be challenging. It's not your average place to fly. It was challenging, and that's what made it so fun. The idea of flying from one 10,000-foot runway with an instrument landing system on it to another 10,000-foot runway to an instrument landing system just bores me to tears. Uh, so, And I, didn't, I don't have much seat range. I can't sit in the pilot seat for hours on end. So I could never be a long-haul pilot. It just wouldn't work for me. I salute the people that can do that. And I would have loved to have gotten my hands on a 747 or something like that just to say I could fly it and got type rated in it. But that kind of flying doesn't appeal to me at all. But if you're interested in that, there's a wonderful book called Skyfaring by a young man named Mark Van Henneker. Almost poetically describes the adventures of flying a 747 to various places around the world. So very good read if you're interested in that kind of flying. So your ex your first exposure to gliders was 1979. I, I hope I'm not fast forwarding too much. No, that's correct. As a flight instructor, if you've ever been in a almost any kind of aviation building, there's aviation magazines laying around. Uh, the chief pilot and owner of the flight school, who eventually became my father-in-law, uh, was a sailplane pilot, and he was a member of the SSA. So his soaring magazines would wind up on the tables out there. So on the weather days when you're not doing anything or don't have a student go through those. So I kind of got hooked on the idea of getting my glider rating. And in uh, 79, I went to Arizona soaring in Australia, Arizona. I'm probably messing up the pronunciation there, Australia or Australia. So I was able to get my private glider add-on in five days. Funny thing, when I was down there, I found out that it was cheaper for me to, I was staying in Phoenix, and Australia's a little bit south of that. It's cheaper for me to rent a Cessna 150 and fly down from uh, Phoenix to Australia than it was to rent a car. So I had that added bonus wow. there. <laughs> oh, it's crazy. I went back uh, three years later in 82 and got my commercial add-on. And as it turns out, you know, over the years I flew gliders, when I had a chance, there's really not much glider activity in Alaska. But when I would have the opportunity, like if we were on vacation in Hawaii, go up to the north shore of Oahu and fly out of Dillingham. And so anytime I got the opportunity, I would, I would do some gliding. But by the time uh, I retired in 2018, I'd been a glider pilot for 39 years, and that's about how many hours I had really kind of hooked on gliding. I just hadn't had the opportunity to take advantage of it. And it was fortunate when I retired, I was, it looked like I would be able to afford a STEMI. And the reason I picked that airplane is back in the early 90s when they first came out, you'd see them in the flying magazines. And I thought, well, if you're going to do some soaring in Alaska, that's really the, the airplane to have because Alaska is just so huge. Yeah. And there's no roads, uh, very few roads. There's only a tiny amount of farming that goes on. So there's no plowed fields or any fields at all to land on. There's either tundra or muskeg wow. or trees. 
So if you're going to do any gliding and explore the possibilities of gliding in Alaska, you needed something that could fly there because you weren't going to tow your glider someplace. There's no road, so you'd have to have something that could fly on its own to get there, try it out. So I kind of fell in love with the Stimmy uh, way back when. And really, I don't have any high-performance glider experience other than the Stimmy, so it probably was a rack decision to, to choose that glider. But it's quite an air machine, and I was fortunate that I was able to uh, purchase one. Uh, Is so that the S12? The S12, yes. And for those who don't know, oh, the nice. Stimmy, I know you have worldwide listeners. I don't want to offend anybody. Uh, I don't speak any German, but uh, I understand the proper pronunciation of S-T-E-M-M-E. German is Stimme, but I think even the factory calls the airplane a Stimme nowadays. And I don't know the reason yeah, I believe, yeah. that they've adopted that, but uh, it could be that Reiner Stimme, the designer of the plane, came up with the idea for it. He's no longer with the company, so maybe to separate themselves, they kind of use a different pronunciation. But anyway, Mr. Stimme came up with a wonderful air machine, and the S-12 is kind of a re refinement of the S-10. There was several different versions of the S-10. The S-12 is a 25-meter, two-place glider, uh, self-launching and only self-launching. It doesn't have any tow capabilities. It's heavy. Its gross weight is 900 kilograms or 1,986 pounds, so just under 2,000 pounds gross weight. Wow. does not have water ballast in the wings, but there is a water ballast tank in the tail, so you could use that to add weight if you want or move the center of gravity aft because if you can get the center of gravity aft, that makes a glider and or airplane more efficient because the tail on conventional airplanes lifts down. Yeah. And so the wings have to lift the weight of the glider and the weight of the tail down force. So if you move the center of gravity after you have less tail down force, the wings have to produce less lift. The glider is more efficient. They make it pretty easy to do the weight weight and balance too, right? The, the, the tail is like marked from what I understand. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting system. There's a tank in the tail and there's a bunch of holes drilled vertically in the tank. And they're labeled uh, in one liter increments. So you, you tape over the holes up to however many liters of water you want. And a liter of water is a kilogram, so or 2.2 pounds. Then you fill your tank with water and still it till the water starts to flow out of the, the next hole. And you know you're, you've got the um, water level you want. So it's not That's dumpable. Nice. You can't, can't dump it in flight. Right, right. But you can use it to add weight or for CG purposes. Probably CG is a better way to do it. If you want to add weight, you can always put fuel in the wings to do that. But What does that hold for fuel? What's the max? Well, the STEMI is, you know, they like to say the best of both worlds, but it's really a, a capable, quite and sophisticated two-place airplane. It has limited baggage space. If you fill up every nook and cranny, you can put just under 100 pounds of baggage in the thing. But as an airplane, okay. it can cruise, the high-speed cruise of around 140 knots. And if you want to go a long distance, you can slow down and have uh, around 900 nautical mile range on 32 gallons of fuel. It burns car gas instead of 
have gas, so that's a little cheaper. Powered by a Rotax 914 turbocharged four-cylinder, four-stroke engine. And it's kind of has wow. an interesting configuration in that the engine is behind the cockpit, and then there's a carbon fiber drive shaft uh, connected to a clutch me- mechanism at the engine, and then it heads up to the propeller gearbox. So that drive shaft is running between the seats, covered, of course, up to the uh, yeah. front of the airplane where the propeller is. The propeller is quite unique in that it's folding, double hinged. So if you fold your arms in front of yourself and then open your arms with your elbows stuck in position, that's how the propeller blade does. Okay, nice. The propeller unfolds due to centrifugal force. So when you start the engine, the blades unfold. When the engine stops, spring pressure pulls the blades back in. So the nose comes out and then the prop comes out. Right. There's a handle in the cockpit. You push that forward about four inches. That moves the nose cone of the airplane forward four inches. And the blades are hidden in there. Uh, you start the engine and the blades fling out. That's your propulsion system. The Rotax engine is very reliable and very simple for aircraft engines. There's no mixture control. Stimmy doesn't put a carb heat on the engine because of the turbocharger. The turbocharger heats the intake air, so there's not been any cases of carburetor icing. So you just have one power level. Whatever. It's so if you're if you're soaring and then you you're going to transition and go ahead and hit the motor. What period of time does it take for that to get out and you're powered by the prop? If I'm already in the glider configuration and I need to start the engine, about five seconds to get the engine started. It takes a second to push the oh, wow. handle forward. Push the handle forward. That takes about a second. And then you turn the key. Uh, the ignition system on the engine has a three-second delay built in so that the propeller blades can start unfolding before the engine kicks in. Otherwise, it would be right, right. Uh, too strong of forces on the propeller. So yeah. it gives the propeller blades a chance to get out into the airstream and unfold, and then the ignition kicks off. So however long it takes the engine to ignite, uh, about five seconds. Uh, going the other direction, you let the engine idle and cool down a bit, turn the key off, and the propeller like on any plane will keep windmilling yeah there's a handle you pull and that applies a brake to the propeller the propeller uh, will stop and the and springs will close the blades fold them back up and then because the fuselage the nose cone has an oval cross section not a circular one if the blades didn't stop in the correct position the nose cone won't close, so there's another handle. You pull a cable, and that rotates the blades into the correct um, orientation so that you can close the uh, nose cone. The cooling air flaps for the engine are connected to the nose cone handle as well, so do both things at the same time. Well, you have some beautiful country there in Alaska. If you could take us on a flight, what has been some of your better flights? Typical flight... Uh, would be from Merrill Field here in Anchorage. And right east of Anchorage is the Chugach Mountain Range. And that's where I do most of my flying. So I will uh, start up and taxi out. The STEMI 
is a tail dragger like a super cub dual main gear and a tail wheel the tail wheel is steerable it doesn't cast or like a super cub or a Cessna 180 or whatever so you can't turn it around in its own wingspan you make wide sweeping turns and because of the 25 meter wingspan which is 82 and a quarter feet my wingtips overhang the taxi lights on both sides of the taxiway because taxiways are about 75 feet wide luckily there's winglets on the wing and so that lets gives me a better view of where the wingtips are as i'm taxiing the s10 didn't have winglets and it had straight wings so it was a little more difficult to see where your wing was anyway i taxi out and take off and i head for the hills so i'll typically climb to five or six thousand feet and that'll put me about one or two thousand feet agl in the mountains there so i'll idle back and poke around looking for some lift if i find it i'll shut down and then start gliding as i told you earlier that anchorage is a very busy aviation area there's five tower controlled airports with overlapping airspace so there's a special airspace diagram for anchorage and each tower gets its own segment international airport is a busy cargo hub. They're, they're second only to Memphis is amount of cargo handled in a year. Both FedEx and UPS have oh, wow. hubs here. Tucked into a corner of Anchorage International is Lakehood Seaplane Base, the busiest seaplane base in the world. About 1,100 planes based there. As most of those seaplanes, but there is a gravel runway there. And then um, the Municipal Airport, Merrill Field, just east of downtown. They try not to do this unless the wind requires it. But on final, you're right over downtown Anchorage to the east runway. And it's got uh, a 4,000-foot, 100-foot wide runway, which comes in handy for me. But I also use the 75-foot wide runway when I need to, the 2,600 feet. So my wingtips are overhanging the runway lights when I do that. There's also a gravel runway at Merrill, there's all these gravel runways around because there's so many airplanes with Tundra tires, big balloon tires, 36, 38 inches in diameter, and they like to land on gravel rather than on pavement. Pavement is really grabby to those tires, so they, and with the radius of the tire can really cause a lot of torque load on the, the axles and the tires themselves, so they prefer gravel. Wings and Wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for over 30 years. They hands down have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplane and soaring supplies in North America, and they ship globally. Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. Wings and Wheels is the exclusive American representative for HPH sailplanes. Be sure to check out the Twin Shark, their latest launch. They're also now the exclusive distributor in North America for the new Just Soaring Glider Sim Pro. The team has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes. Staffed by Adam, Kelly, Laura, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call or email them. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. We were talking earlier in the pre-interview and you were talking about the extreme temperatures in Alaska and the reason they use gravel runways because it just really busts up the asphalt. So it's easier to repair the gravel 
runways than it is the asphalt. Yeah, that was uh, back flying the 737s. Our seven, most of our 737s were equipped for gravel operations because it, it, back then there still was gravel airports, a lot of towns, and gravel runways did have an advantage in that if they get frost heaves and then due to the freeze thaw conditions, you can just run a, a road grader down it and smooth it out, whereas an asphalt runway just winds up accordion-like, washboard-like uh, sometimes. Yeah. Once the company uh, retired the 737-200, there wasn't a, an airplane that could handle the gravel. The 737-400 and the newer ones after that, their engines are just too low to the ground. They make great Hoover vacuum cleaners for sucking up gravel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's what happened good. when Alaska Airlines pulled out of retired the 200s, those gravel runways that the airports that wanted to continue to get jet service, they had to pave their runways. So. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah the, the planes had a nickname of mud hens because they'd sometimes come back looking like they'd been in a mud fight after landing on a wet gravel runway. <laughs> yeah, right. The Anchorage area is just saturated with airplanes, and luckily I have... Um, ADSB in and out in the STEMI. I also have FLARM, but I'm probably the only glider in the state that has FLARM, so it doesn't do me any good. And as far as gliding in the state, I know of about a half a dozen other motor gliders, and okay. I know of five pier gliders, three of them owned by the Civil Air Patrol. Between the Anchorage and Fairbanks squadrons, they share the three gliders. Uh, they have a 233, an ASK 21, and a Blahnik L23. And then there's kind of a fledgling soaring club forming here. They have a 233 that's been beautifully restored, and they also have a 126 and a Cessna 182 for towing. So as far as I know, it would be easy for there to be more, but that's about the extent of the glider population in Alaska. So Yeah, that was going to be my next question. So one of my goals is to get my glider instructor rating so I can be some help to the cadet program. Nice. Very cool. I found a mechanic here that could work on my plane, and he owns an ASH-26E motor glider, and his hangar partner has a DG-505 with a motor. So I lucked out in finding someone that has glider experience to work on my airplane. Oh, that's so, very cool. Nice. That's been great. But I tend to be pretty conservative in my operations. I take off and fly into the Shugash Mountains and fly around until gravity wins, and then I head home. And I've only wandered maybe 40 nautical miles away. Cross-country-wise, my next goal is to try and make it up to Talkeetna, which is a, a village about 65 nautical miles north of Anchorage and famous mostly as being the staging area for the climbers on Denali, the tallest mountain in uh, North yeah. America. So they stage out of Talkeetna. There's quite a fleet of single-engine otters on wheel skis there. So they load up climbers and gear and head off to the base camps on Denali and unload them. And uh, they'll also take tourists up to land on uh, the glaciers there and have a little lunch and on the side of the mountain and oh, wow. come back. That's kind of an adventure. I haven't done that, but I would certainly like to. 
So what's your soaring season like with the S12? Well, it turns out it's kind of like everyone else's. I, around the middle of April is when the snow lets up down here so the tie-down areas and stuff are clear. And I fly into uh, the middle of October if I get lucky. It starts snowing a little bit earlier than I'll put it away earlier. But so pretty much almost six months. Right. Got shut out of last year's season because of an airworthiness directive on the STEMI. But the good and exciting news is that the STEMI is going to be here in two weeks to fix the AD. So I'm looking forward to this season. Nice. So as soon as the snow melts, uh, you'll get in the air. Yeah. I had so much fun in my aviation career, and that's why I like soaring so much. It's just pure fun. When you fly different airplanes, most of the excitement and the challenge is during the takeoff and climb and then the approach and landing. And some of that can be really fun. I would say, you know, like getting your float rating or seaplane rating, that's some of the most fun you can have if you're a power pilot. But the fun is in the takeoffs and landings. Once you're in the air, it's an airplane like any other airplane. But when you're storing, you're always busy flying. You don't get to click on the autopilot and sit back and relax you, or just even set an altitude and a heading and you're going to go somewhere. You're always flying and, and it's just pure joy to be out there doing it. Love going to the airport. It takes me an hour to unfold the wings on the STEMI and uh, get the plane pre-flighted and I taxi out and take off and head for the hills and try and find some lift and shut down. Even if it uh, turns out to be a flat day and there's nothing around, I'll climb a little higher and shut down and uh, fly around for 45 minutes or an hour and then head back to the airport. I almost never restart the engine if I can avoid it. I always land as a glider. Municipal airport, the tower there has never had any problem with that. Stemmy's nice in that if I'm heading in and they want to put a an airplane or two in front of me, they say, oh, can you do a 360 out there? And sure, no problem. Uh, with the Stimmy's glide ratio and minimum sink speed. So I can just loiter out there for a little bit because I always plan my arrivals high anyway, uh, just for that kind of thing. Yeah, that's a good choice. But Merrill Field's a kind of a training airport along with all kinds of other aircraft activities. So um, it's easy to get told you need to wait a little bit before you can come in. But I love it all, I, the whole thing about it. I was fortunate to be able to afford the, uh, the STEMI, and it, it's a joy every time I go get in it. I really like the side-by-side scene and kind of attracts a lot of attention at the airport. Pretty sure I have the coolest airplane at the place, but um, some others might disagree. Right. <laughs> but it does attract the attention, and I'll offer a ride to anybody that walks up and wants to chat or go for a flight or whatever. Nice. Well, next time I'm in Alaska, I'll bum a ride from you. Well, you're more than welcome. We'll, we'll do whatever we can. Because I think you and I are about in the same boat experience-wise, glider-wise. So, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. If you ever make it up here, we'll go have some fun. Uh, sounds good to me. Michael, I always like to ask guests, if you had a safety tip to give someone how to be a better and safer pilot from what you've learned in the air, what would you say? I've really appreciated your podcast because you do ask this question. I've heard all the answers. 
uh, people have given, and I'll be kind of reiterating some of theirs. But first thing would be don't get complacent. I have quite a lot of aviation experience, and I've seen some people that I really respected and were more experienced than I am and have trouble. So I know that those kind of things can happen to me. And it's easy to uh, think that, oh, I won't do that. Or, you know, pilots have a tendency to see an accident report or whatever and think, oh, that would never happen to me. But it does happen. I got a flyer, I think, from an insurance company or something that showed up in my email box. I thought the title was just perfect. It was called 10 Bad Habits That Other Pilots Have. Yeah. That's perfect. You know, it included things like not using a checklist and not doing a proper walk around and stuff like that. But but those are the things that you have to fight and you can't rely on the fancy gliding computers you have in your plane. You can't rely on any of those electronics to be working all the time. And I've had that happen and they always fail at just the wrong time. I've been in the middle of a missed approach on the north slope of Alaska and the flight management computer just goes away. It just quits and the screens go blank. So you have to be ready to deal with those kind of things. So don't let that idea that it won't happen to you or you're too experienced to uh, make those mistakes uh, creep into your thoughts. The other thing I would say was would be to always be learning. There's just so much to know out there. I've been watching webinars as much as I can and they're everywhere. I just watched three of them this week. One on transitioning and gliders. That was put on by the Boston FAA safety team. American Bonanza Society webinar on what you should have learned in your complex or technical advanced aircraft training. And that was kind of applicable, even though it's a power pilot webinar, kind of applicable to things in the STEMI, because the STEMI's a complex aircraft if it was an airplane and then a very interesting webinar put in put on by the NAFI the National Association of Flight Instructors about helicopter weight turbulence easily possible to have a helicopter arrive at some uh, place where there's gliders or any other small airplanes and the uh, webinar was eye-opening about how much damage helicopters could do and how powerful their wakes are so seek out those webinars. The SSA has quite an archive of webinars, but there's sources of information out there. So take advantage of it and always be learning. Not only does it help you out, but it's fun. Thank you, Michael. Do you have any shout outs? I always like to give people a chance to give a shout out for the people that have been influential in their aviation journey. Well, I already mentioned Craig Foltz. He was the wing pilot that put the idea in my head to go into aviation as a career. So without him, I don't know what I'd be doing. So I'd like to thank him again. Hopefully he'll get the word. All the guys at STEMI USA when I bought the airplane, uh, some of the nicest and best people I've ever met. Uh, that was Don Bell, uh, Wes Chumley, and Zach Huey. It was almost worth the cost of the airplane just to meet them. And then I would be lost without my best friend, Kenny Williams. He and I made our careers together we were both flight instructors together then we both went to era the charter outfit that we flew for he stayed there quite a bit longer than i did but we both wound up at uh, alaska airlines and retired from there 
and he helps me immensely when it comes to moving my glider trailer and putting the stemmy together and taking it apart. It's quite a process. It's a heavy glider. The wing center section is 400 pounds. The Cobra trailer that I have has three electric winches in it, two big car batteries to drive the winches. Two of the winches are used as hoists so that the trailer is used to hoist up the wing center section so you can move the fuselage underneath it and then lower it down on the fuselage and mount it. If anybody's interested, there's a well done new YouTube video. Just put in STEMI and Cobra together and you can see a couple of gentlemen putting a STEMI S10 together. But anyway, without Kenny Williams, I wouldn't be doing any of that. Uh, he's helped me from day one. We've been friends uh, for coming up on 50 years soon. So I just have to give a shout out to Kenny. And then there's been so many other people along the way, but uh, those are the main ones. Well, thank you. And I'll put that um, link in there for the YouTube video in the show notes if people want to check that out. Mike, it's been great to have you on the podcast. Well, it's been uh, wonderful to be on it with you and uh, my privilege. It was, it was uh, great to talk to you and it's great to hear from some glider pilots out of Alaska. I've always been curious, actually, how many there are up there and are flying because I know your weather is challenging, but uh, the STEMI is a great aircraft, I'm sure, to fly in Alaska. It is, and I have a lot of fun with it. I'm looking forward to venturing a little farther afield uh, with it, seeing what I can find because in a state this size, there has to be some fantastic storing conditions. just a matter of going to find them. Well, that's going to be a, a huge journey and a huge adventure. Uh, anybody listening winds up in Alaska and wants to go for a ride in the STEMI, they just need to get a hold of me. I'll, I'll put some contact information in the show notes if that's cool with you. That's okay. It's uh, definitely on my bucket list, so hope to get up there. I hope you make it, Chuck. It'd be wonderful to meet you in person and we'll go flying together. Uh, that would be great, Michael. Looking forward to it. Thank you, Michael. Well, thank you, Chuck. I appreciate it. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.